Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome all. One and all. To Like Trees Walking. Uh, I am Michael J. Nelson. I am the Reverend, um, doctor in air quotes, uh, David Paul Berge. Or D. Like, Paul Berge. I feel like sometimes we forget to say up front who we are. And I wonder if people just sit there going... Who are these people talking in my head? Because, you know, we kind of, we rush past it. We do, we we do. I feel like probably because, you know, we're, we are for at least the last two months, the fastest growing podcast in this country. And, but we're still sort of like a, a niche product. So I think people that find us generally, like someone probably put them on and said, Hey, you should like, here's who these people are. Listen to them. So they don't know which voices are if they've heard it, but you know, like, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but we should probably be a little more professional. Yes. And I often wonder, you know, did you ever listen to someone for a long time on the radio and then you just form a physical impression of, oh, of yeah. them? Oh, yes. And then it yes. turns out to be quite different. Um, yeah. Like, I am a 40-year-old woman. It, that doesn't immediately <laughs> seem apparent. And yet, isn't that odd? So I just want people to know that. And you um, you are... You are a horse. <laughs> yeah. So, if you've seen Bojack Horseman, uh, yeah. I'm sort of of the same yeah. genre and species as that. So, yes, I'm a giant talking horse. Yeah. Like so, we, it's just sort of we want to put you in that sort of the physical space that we're in inside <laughs> so, your head. So, if someone wants to send in, uh, if we could get some fan art, maybe <laughs> oh. of a 40 year old female oh, Michael yeah. J. Nelson and me as a horse. You know not what you ask. We will. <laughs> we will post it on the internet if we could get some beautiful fan art. Okay. So now you know who we are. And what do we do here at the podcast Like Trees Walking? Pastor David Berge. Here's what we do. We chop it up. We break it down, as the kids say. The biggest questions um, of life, theology, faith, culture, we do it from a Christian perspective. Um, but really what we want to do is we want to be engaging to people, no matter where they come on the spectrum. Faith, no faith, uh, passionate believers, apathetic, or you know, against uh, Christianity and all religion. We, we, we just want to give things um, an intelligent and fair hearing, these big questions. Right. And we, we take all comers. We welcome everyone to listen. We think that uh, Christianity still has a lot to say, believe it or not, in uh, the modern world. Absolutely. And to that end, let me give you a rundown of what we've got today. It is an exciting show. I believe last week we did the best show ever. So we have a lot of work to try to top that uh, this, uh, this episode. And we have a big question of the day, of course. And then uh, another department that's becoming increasingly popular, David Berge tastes something that I make or have around my house. And yeah. for those of you who have listened at all know that that could be an exciting sequence. We don't know what will happen. It's funny because it was like Mike had, he had the one prepared um, for our first podcast, but we recorded it. We usually record these two at a time, just so you know. And then it was like, oh, he didn't have something else. And it was like, oh, I'm like, what's he going to try to like, like, is it going to be like a maybe like past its expiration date food? Are we going there? But it's like, no, no he actually had a plethora of options for disgusting <laughs> foods in his pantry. So and these are things that I eat <laughs> on a regular basis. So disgusting is in the eye of the eater. Uh, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we will revisit an old department with a new ethical dilemma. So we will solve one of the very the controversial departments. From... So I like going yeah, back to this I, one. Apparently I stirred up uh, some hornets with you my sure last did. one. You so sure go did. back and listen to that. We'll just hint at that. All right. So let's get to it. Let's get to the big question of the day. Break it down. Chew it into bite-sized pieces. This is uh, something you brought to my attention. Um, the uh, there's a, a public research firm called PRRI. Yeah, it's the uh, 
Public Research Religion Institute or something I like believe that? so. I'm uh, pri 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 sort of linger on the R's and go up to the pri. Yes. And they uh, conducted a study that had some for for us, for us being uh, two Christians in the modern world, had some distressing news. Why don't you uh, give them the news and let's talk about it? Yeah. So, um, and a hat tip to our, our friend John, um, friend and, and, and helpful in getting the pod spurred and started. So thank you, yes, John, thank for you John. bringing this to our attention. He's also our producer, um, uh, not in the room ever, but, um, but he's our producer for sure. And so, <laughs> so John, uh, John put this uh, research to my attention, and it was a, a study done recently. And so this is something, as, as particularly as a pastor, um, you know, in Minneapolis, in South Minneapolis, it's, uh, you know, young um, millennial saturated part of the city in many ways. So, um, the, 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 the beliefs or the religious perspectives of millennials are really interesting to me because that's the context in which I do ministry. And so this study is just basically, I think the title of it is, uh, Exodus. Um, I believe, uh, why Americans are leaving religion and why they're unlikely to come back. So, uh, <laughs> That's a cheerful headline for a pastor who planted a church. Exactly. So we've got Exodus, you know, the great biblical book of Moses freeing the Israelites. But, oh, wait, instead of the Israelites being freed from their slavery in Egypt to become uh, worshipers of uh, of the God of Israel, we have just a bunch of people leaving religion behind. So <laughs> Never to return. Exactly. They're, and they ain't never coming back. So um, what the research found was, and this is, you know, this has been covered across the, spe the spectrum. This is a well-established trend that now I think the largest religious group in America, and particularly amongst young people, let's say 18 to 29-year-olds, is not no religious preference. That's why they call them nuns. It's that when they are presented with survey data and they say, which um, religious group or tradition do you identify with? You know, Catholic, Protestant. Um, Jewish, you know, Hindu, Buddhist, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, whatever. You got a whole spectrum of choices you can make. Um, the most common answer is none of the above. And that right now, uh, amongst 18 to 29-year-olds, that's 40% of, of that, that demographic group. And just for some context, in 1986, so when I was, when I was a four-year-old boy, um, that same group of people, 18 to 29-year-olds, you know, when asked the same question, only 10%, so 1 in 10, then said no religious preference, and uh, now it is 4 in 10. So you see, that is just a massive, massive shift. Yeah, I'm tugging on my <laughs> collar right now and going, oh boy. Exactly, Ugh. and so like, what, like what's going on? There's a few things, but another couple interesting tidbits of data that I really want to break down from this uh, from the survey was when saying when. So when did these 18 to 29-year-olds become... Um, religiously unaffiliated, or when did the unaffiliated become unaffiliated? Uh, that 62, I think it was 62%, north of 60%, um, said it was by the time they were 18. So basically by the time they graduated high school, they were unaffiliated. So this was a decision that was made very early in life. And it remained, and it's remaining more and more consistent. So that decision of saying, well, yeah, I'm unaffiliated, like it used to be in the past that that would shift. So people who were raised unaffiliated um, would be much more likely to eventually, the majority would become religious later in life, but not anymore. And of that group, so of that, you know, of this unaffiliated group, the reason, so they said, why is this? You know, what's the, what's the reason? I thought, well, it's probably just going to be like sort of a grab bag of reasons spread like, you know, nothing's going to be in the majority. It'll be spread pretty evenly. Um, and, but the, again, over north of 60%, the reason that they gave for being unaffiliated 
was that uh, they don't believe what their religion teaches anymore. And so um, we have young people leaving the faith because they don't believe this stuff anymore. And so, you know, what is going on here? What is going on and, and what do we do? First of all, do we, we accept? We pretty much have to accept these findings. This, does this comport with your anecdotal experience on the street as you turn your hat backwards and sit backwards on a chair and rap with the kids these days? Is as this I, what you're finding and as well? Yes, it is, it is what I find as well. I mean, I think um, uh, I am the oldest millennial. I, I was born in 1982, and I think a lot of times that's, that's the cutoff. I have seen as like early as 1980 still fall in the millennial gap, born in 1980, but a lot of times 1982 is kind of that cutoff. So I am the oldest millennial. So from my perch of wisdom, um, I would say that these findings, yeah, are incredibly accurate. I mean, I think one thing that we're seeing happen is that America used to be much more of a culturally Christian nation. So it's not that people, you know, were um, super religious and attending church every week, but that there was a certain cultural expectation in this country that to be an American, you know, a member of uh, the West and of the free world, um, as opposed to like the, you know, our great communist enemy. Like part of being an American and being a member of the, the free world was being a Christian as well, that that was just sort of baked into the cultural expectations. I don't know. Mike, you, you experienced much more of the Cold War uh, than I do, but I, I don't know if that was something that was sort of in the air or in the water in that era. Well, I think that that was greatly overstated, and, and I find it also that that sort of meme about laughing about hunting communists and everything was also overstated. Mm -hmm. And and so I think the religious thing was a little overstated culturally. I, th I think that everybody had their, you know, as I grew up, I had atheist older cousins and stuff like that. It was, you know, it was very much there. It wasn't, you weren't shunned. You weren't drummed out of, of modern society. Right. Um, the thing I'm interested in, is this true across all ethnic lines like in african-american culture in uh, you know your latino culture everything are they much all much more common if you look at the data it's much much more common for white um yeah white that's, people. that's what i would have guessed exactly yeah. and so like why is that i mean maybe that's a whole a whole nother show but you know what is going on here that um that by the time people are 18 they're saying i don't believe it anymore and what do i think is happening and what do i say to that as a pastor and i will just say like that I guess in leading the churches, like that we have perhaps not presented an intellectually credible, um, or we haven't tended to the intellectual credibility of the faith. Like we've just sort of assumed that everyone's showing up and by just showing up, they'll believe. Or is it the fact that we've kind of created these church communities with with such low expectations on people that sort of, yeah, showing up, like the average, I think average church attender comes three out of eight every Sundays. So if you create um, a religious community where the normative practice is showing up less than half the time, is it any surprise that like these practices show, if I do something three out of eight weeks, like it's not very important to me, especially when the main thing is only once a week. So it doesn't really matter. Um, and so when I act like it doesn't matter in the life of my family, um, then I probably don't take the tenets of this religious faith very seriously in the rest of my life. And so it's no wonder that you sort of raise a whole generation of kids who go, well, like my parents don't really believe this stuff. Um, it's not that important to us. It, it hasn't played a determinative or shaping role in the life of, of, of my family or in our conversations that we have around our table. Like, 
and you're telling me I can sleep in on Sunday mornings and go to brunch and read the New York Times rather right. than go here? Uh, yeah, like I, I'm, if I'm this taking is, that bargain. If this is just optional, then I will choose option B because yeah. it's less demanding and um, a lot more delicious than communion bread. You know. Yeah, and I think that it's it's also obviously very tough in a world in which um, kids, as soon as they, well, pretty much all through school and everything, the postmodern view, which, you know, is the subject of another show, but the view that really there is no truth except the truth that is within yourself or, you know, that you project onto the world or that truth is just a narrative that you write, all of those things, you know, those that, that fall under the big umbrella of yeah. postmodernism. I mean, every kid learns from early on. They have an out for all of this stuff. Like, I, I'm just creating a different narrative, Mom, which means I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here playing, you know, COD 4 on the uh, on the PlayStation 4 instead of going to church. I mean, Very it's nice. easy. This is my, this is what I'm doing, you know. And so that that's tough to, how do you keep that in in a world that's just constantly telling you there is no truth? That You can't even... <laughs> And Where yeah, do you start? In that, uh, what's, you know? I forget who said this, but sort of the dominant, um, you know, expressive individualism is sort of like the dominant cultural norm, you know, that uh, that we affirm and, and nurture in everyone, right? That the most important thing is that you be able to freely express who you are as an individual and do whatever you want to do. And so if that's the sort of normative cultural value, I, I, and I think for like that's sort of the default setting for almost anyone, um, Christian faith and practice runs up pretty hard against that. But if you're spending 99% of your time feeding into um, practices and beliefs and disciplines that basically say like, no, like it's important for you to create and craft your own narrative and life. And then you see this other thing, this, this, the Christian religion being held up, Jesus saying, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Right. Like those two things don't mix at all. And so if the one has just been nurtured in you your whole life and then you know, three out of eight every Sundays, you hear this sort of weird stuff about this other thing. It's like you've already been sort of preconditioned by your default practices to reject that. Right. And, and it doesn't do a lot of good, in my opinion, um, it, although it's a great thing and a true message to tell a kid, you know, like, oh, uh, Jesus has a, a wonderful plan for your life. That doesn't defend them against the outside sources that tell them, you know, there not even any such thing as this guy. He didn't even exist. You know what I mean? Right, it doesn't right, inoculate right. you, even if you believe it. And so I'm not saying that this is a, a plan for anyone else who's thinking about how to, to stave off these things. But with my kids, we, we did a lot of apologetics to inoculate them before we sort of sent them into environments where we didn't, we knew that these other messages were coming at them. And so rather than of course, there was the, the training in Christianity, but also training in what we're doing right here, which is to say that Christianity has has the, uh, a, a stall in the marketplace right. of ideas. <laughs> a seat I finally at the table in the marketplace of ideas, as Mike <laughs> likes to say. But yeah, I mean, that there is um, that there is the very, very important um, place, uh, I mean, of just sort of what ritual, what people derisively call going through the motions. I mean, the rituals of faithful practice are very, very important to sort of um, track these grooves in people's life. Um, and, and they're they're necessary, but they're not sufficient um, for, mm -hmm. for living out a Christian faith in a pluralist world. Because I don't think, I'm not interested, and I don't think it's even possible to sort of go back to a, you know, Christian nation or, or, or Christendom. Um, we live in a pluralist society, a pluralist world. That's okay. That's fine. And there's a, definitely a, a, the Christian faith has much to say and much to speak into that and live it out. 
And so this apologetics task, this giving us, uh, being able to explain um, your faith and your hope in Christ and um, your sort of orientation towards living in the world, like if you can prepare people when they're young, because I think we see that that kind of, you know, there's a naivete that comes when you're young. Maybe that goes away when you're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. Then you're really trying to figure out what you believe and who you are. Um, those are important years for equipping um, equipping young adults, equipping, equipping kids to be able to really, because they're at an age where they can sufficiently start to tackle these big questions and big arguments and understand um, that this isn't like a, uh, a fairy story that we're telling them when they're little kids, but that this is, uh, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the true myth, right? right. That there's yep. the mythological elements, meaning sort of the foundational, sort of the foundation story and the foundation narrative from which we live our lives. But, uh, you know, it's the true myth. It's the myth which actually captures um, reality and provides us with grist for living the mill of our lives or whatever. Yeah, it's that uh, anyone who's ever told a child a story, you can see when you've captured them, when you start, you know, once upon a time there was a, and their eyes widen. That is the, what we believe is the, the, the reason for that is that there is a true version of yes. that story. It is a, an exciting, thrilling story that happens to be true. It is unbelievable, which makes it that much more thrilling because you can't, you go, what? No, this can't be. But in fact, it is. And so I, I heard this kind of what the last thing I want to say on this, and I, I heard this very helpfully recently. I can't remember where I think it was a podcast, but someone sort of describing like, the, what is the task of apologetics? We're saying, you know, we, we need to equip folks, uh, young or old. I mean, we could all use uh, sort of a boning up in, a, in apologetics. And but what's the task of apologetics? And it's, it's they said it's a threefold task. Like first, um, you show people that your beliefs aren't stupid. So it's so like yes. the default assumption is like you believe that you're dumb. You're an idiot. You're an yeah. idiot. So like that's like not a trivial task to like actually <laughs> address that and say like no this isn't actually stupid. Next, um, you need to have the person want to believe that this is true. So um, it's a very compelling presentation of of the gospel. You know of the Christian story. Why um, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is like good, great unbelievable news mm -hmm. for the world and then you know so you want them to believe it's true and then you show them how it's true and so um it's disabusing them of this notion that it's stupid and it's showing them um the really aesthetic beauty of christianity and then the mind falls into line along that and i thought that was a helpful sort of three-stage way to think about what is the apologetic task before us nice all right, so this is nothing to panic about. This is sort of business as usual. It's a trajectory that's happening. I don't think personally um, that it's a great idea to have culture aligned with Christianity, quote unquote. You know right. what I mean? Like to have that be sort of a dominant thing because it, it, uh, it's not necessarily good is what I'm saying, that a lot of people then just take it as, oh, that's just, a, that's just the gloss on top of my life and not the actual thing. And so... As people fall away from the sort of cultural aspects of it, they may get deeper into the, the real part. Narrow is the gate, as Jesus said. And so, as the old song says, straight is the gate and narrow the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord. I saw the Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 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 Okay, yes, absolutely. absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish with a parting uh, warning of a little bit of. Uh, I don't say it's a danger, but watch for this. It is. Uh, it's. It's not an actual quote of our of our dear friend G.K. Chesterton, but it's a. It's sort of a summation quote of his. 
when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in everything. And so you'll see people with some wacky ideas once they, once they drop that so-called wacky idea of Christianity. People don't just stop believing it. They're not nuns. They will grasp onto something because we are built that way. Mark my words, Pastor David Berge. No, I, trust me, I believe it. Uh, it's, uh, and I will counter you with a quote from Calvin. The human mind is a factory of idols. So you stop believing God, you're going to invent some idol in which you will place your trust. And it might be really weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was good. Uh, we will take a break and uh, come back, sum up what we talked about. And uh, we'll eat some garbage and talk about a... <laughs> garbage? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, that, right. that's very pejorative. All you're right. editorializing. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Dave Berge here. Thank you so much for listening to Like Trees Walking. If you could do us a huge favor, uh, it would be to go to iTunes. Um, I know it's hard. You like have to go to a PC and open up the actual program iTunes and log in. And if you don't have like a username or whatever, it, it's it's like probably takes two three minutes. But if you could spare that time and go in, um, rate us and review us. The more ratings and reviews we have, um, the easier it is for people who, you know, aren't friends or friends of friends to discover this podcast and uh, uh, listen in on these, what we hope are intelligent um, and enlightening and empowering conversations that we are having. So that would be a huge favor you could do for us. Rate us and review us on iTunes. Of course, uh, you can like our Facebook page, the Like Trees Walking Facebook page. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at LTWPod is the um, uh, is the handle, and then there's LikeTreesWalkingPod.com where you can see our bios, listen to all the old episodes, um, and uh, and yeah, see what's going on. So we thank you so much for listening, for sharing this, um, for interacting with us. We truly love this, and we appreciate your support. So thank you, everyone, for uh, all the great feedback we've gotten. And now, enjoy the rest of the show. That is the great Elvis Costello, a.k.a. Declan McManus. What do you mean, a.k.a. Declan McManus? That's his real name. Oh, De- okay. Declan McManus. We, uh, my first son, we came very close to naming him Declan, and then we realized that that was Elvis Costello's name, and then we thought that would be pretty pretty cringeworthy if people thought that we had done it in, uh, you know, to, to honor Elvis Costello. If they thought so the that, truth? No, no, it wasn't. So anyway, his name is not that. Okay. Um, all right. So we're back uh, from Dave's little appeal, and uh, I don't, I don't call it a little appeal to, to yeah, that's to, so to, to make it diminutive. Yeah. I just meant that it was brief. Oh, did you have fun today with oh, your little friends? You had a cute little. Are you? It's like what I would do, uh, do something at uh, in theaters, and my mom would say, "How was play practice?" It sounded so, you know, infantilizing. Yeah, yeah like. Uh, Play practice. Oh, it's it's are, rehearsal, mother. So anyway, I did not mean to. Thank you. It was not a these pejorative. appeals are serious. I know, and it was. I meant that it was short. Okay. I'm, a brief. A brief. We're back from Dave's. Let, let me reset. All right, we're back from Pastor Dave Berge's brief appeal. I hope you took it seriously, and uh, <laughs> let us sum up uh, what we said in the first segment. We were talking about the nuns. Why yep. don't you wrap it up? We were talking about the rise of the nuns and sort of the various reasons for that. Um, but just the surprising thing that it's 
um, young people, uh, and they're giving it up, the majority of them, because they just don't believe it. And so what does that mean for the church? It's not panic time, but it's time for us to uh, roll up our sleeves, sharpen our pencils, and gird our loins. Um, (laughs) Talk about mixing metaphors. (laughs) And uh, But no, that there's an apologetic task before us to equip um, our young people for... um, living out their Christian faith and defending it in the public square. And so, um, like, the Christian faith has wonderful intellectual resources to marshal behind it. And so um, let's start marshalling the, the the beliefs and the practices that are going to reinforce that as opposed to just sort of, like, this vague, milk toast nothingness that kids are going to abandon. So let's, let's, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it because um, it's an opportunity, right? The mm-hmm. harvest is great. There and the many. Work, yes, and yeah. the workers are few. And and you know the Chinese word uh, for crisis is opportunity. Or I can't remember that. <laughs> I, I bet dollars to donuts that that's not true, but we'll see. I think I looked it up, but I just love how on the Simpsons he goes, "Yeah, it's a crisisunity or something like that." So, anyways, yeah, it's a crisisunity before us people. All right, before we get to our uh, revisit an old department, we have a uh, sort of a tradition here that's where you know we do these things again, a peek behind the curtain, and we get a little hungry and. And Dave likes to eat the snacks that I have on hand, and so I pulled out a, a little delicious, um, this is, as the Italians call it, pulpo. This is octopus that has been tinned and, uh, and, and in oil, and I open that up, and I'll just say frankly right now, from the look on Dave's face, I think this is a, a department we won't be revisiting a lot anymore. Um. He's a little green. It's a, a, a pronounced... Fishy smell, would you say? Very fishy. Um, beet kvass is one thing like, oh, it tastes like dirt. Ha ha ha. This is like, uh, am I going to vomit? You know, when that's like a live question. But Mike assures me that it has a very mild flavor. It just smells fishy, but it has a, it's, it's actually a wonderful taste. So why don't you dive in and... Uh, and it lo- I mean, it doesn't look bad. Like, it doesn't mm, look like a disgusting... I've started. Oh, it's, it's quite good. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> It took it took more force than I expected to push the fork into it. So these are like little chopped up bits of tentacles. You can see the it's little coming to my mouth suckers right oh and my everything. God. So it's it's got the, the good all the, the good stuff. You know that sense of dread, like before you just have to do something you really don't want to do. Um, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. So what that is, how does that apply here? <laughs> that existential dread. Um, I don't understand. Okay, here he is. He's tasting it now for the listener at home. Dave is chewing. He's doing the disgusting chewing over the mic sounds, which is verboten in all of radio, but somehow mm. he thinks it's okay. Um, I swallowed it. He swallowed it is his... It's like the fear factor where they'd go like, bah, like open their mouth. Or Ooh, would they? Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't like that. Um, so it it tastes like fish food smells, I would say, would be my um, first verdict. It has a... Um, a like the worst part of the beef jerky aftertaste um, in my mouth for whatever reason. I, that, beef that, jerky. That's right. it's or like a jerk a jerkied meat taste, a dried meat taste to it actually. Okay. All right. So um, in other words, thumbs up. Um, I will not be taking another bite, and I'm actually really proud of myself that I'm not <laughs> vomiting right now. It doesn't taste. Oh, just as go have a have your Big Macs and your Doritos and your Cheetos. Paws and your Cheetos curls <laughs> and your, uh, they have Philistine. like the don't they have like the like the Cheetos chicken fries now? Yeah, yeah. That that kind of mashup is always it's like stuff you can buy at a uh, you know a corner grocery store 
mixed with the food. I, I never understood why that, that's an appeal. Don't you want to go, you want to aim higher than just garbage you can buy in a bag at a grocery or at a uh, gas station? Yeah, like octopus tentacles. Yeah, right, absolutely. exactly. Where else? You cannot find these at your local Super America. That's a local reference for those of you who yes. are listening from out of There's state. There's no Super Moms um, <laughs> brand octopus tentacles. I wonder why. No, no, no. I think the more disgusting mashups, the better. Like the Double Down from KFC, delicious. Is that the, the two chicken patties yep. with something? Really <laughs> so you'd good. actually just pick up like hot chicken patties with your hand? Yeah. Did you actually have one? I, yes, I've only I did. Seen yes, videos. I did. I did have one. I I'm took a special trip. I'm guessing it did not trip. look as good as the no. pictures. <laughs> no, it was like, that was the most disappointing thing is like you see this like amazing picture of this like crisp be fresh hot fried chicken and it was like a very it was like a very wilty like it reminded me of uh school lunch like chicken patty on bun like two of those school chicken patties with like a like a tepid um cheese sauce in the middle with this wilty bacon it was awful but the idea was great and the octopus was great all right i'm (laughs) glad you enjoyed it uh all right we need to move on to a former department we're going to revisit this is our ethical dilemmas I believe we did this a couple episodes ago. We did. Mike talked about, um, like, if you music and, you know, ripping the copies onto your computer. And then if yeah, so- the, the ethics of sort of owning music and what to do about it in a digital age. And uh, I grew up in a time where you didn't you didn't steal a toaster, so you wouldn't steal music. But these kids today, your Pastor Dave and all of these guys with it's the like, stealing music. <laughs> it's like, what if you could clone your toaster and then give it away? That's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. you know, what we're saying. But so, I know I had one friend who's a big fan of the pod. Thank you for listening. Who was like, Mike's crazy on that music stuff. And I said, well, you two hash it out. Have an online flame war with each other. I don't want to. certainly not crazy. I am ethical, sir. Oh, you are the most ethical man. All right, so world. you have you're going to present us with one, one. Yeah, so uh, this is a live ethical dilemma. Um, I was wanted to do as I am a pastor. Um, sometimes parishioners uh, find their way in the hospital, so I was visiting a parishioner in the hospital um, at our big downtown hospital here in Minneapolis, Hennepin County uh, Medical Center, and so it's this um, hideous, brutalist architecture uh, medical center building. Um, really very befitting of like just a, a, just a Stalin era. Yes, Stalin-esque <laughs> um, uh, medical building. Though they're putting new buildings in and I think it'll be very nice once it's transformed. Um, or it, there'll be at least like attractive buildings next to the big ugly ones. Um, but it's, yeah, this it's this Stalin-esque uh, labyrinth that people go to. But it's, you know, so it's downtown Minneapolis and so it takes all comers um, and all kinds of people are around there. And, and, and as I was departing back to my car um, after visiting this... Um, this parishioner who found their way in there, um, I happened across a couple walking down the street, and I had to do a double take because on the woman's face, um, largely and prominently displayed on her left facial cheek, um, so the left cheek of her face, and and her face was rather puffy, I would say. Um, she looked to be in her mid-20s, mid to late 20s, a large tattoo. I mean, a very, like covering the entire cheek um, of the Klondike Bar polar bear. <laughs> on her face and um it was basically i I shouldn't laugh this is an ethical (laughs) but it was basically just like an outline it was an outline but it was well done i mean even if it was just a trace you recognized it without any trouble no no trouble what is that no it was a klondike bar polar bear maybe it wasn't the exact logo but it was like that same kind of um outline sketch of a polar bear tattooed on her face and uh and and it was well it was a well done even if it was just an outline like it was well done it was cleanly done you could tell like someone who knew what they were doing had had done this a tattoo artist had done this and so my question okay when it comes to the ethical dilemma for tattoo artists like 
this person is putting this mark on their face. Now, let's just be honest. Having a large tattoo on your face is limiting in life in terms of what you can do. Um, I think that is, I think that is true. Yeah, like I, that's just a fact. Like you are severely curtailing career, class, relationship opportunities by this permanent ink that you have put on your face. So as a tattoo artist, what are the ethics of actually doing that tattoo? Like, can you ethically do that kind of tattoo on someone's face? So you mean it's sort of the first do no harm thing where you have to do the, and this I don't know, do tattoo artists have some loose code by I, which they... Yeah, like I think if someone's drunk, you're not, you know, they come in intoxicated to your shop, you're not supposed to, maybe even legally, tattoo them. If they're a minor, um, under a certain age, you're not supposed to tattoo. And I think then if maybe you're 15, 16, 17, like you have to get parental permission. So there's like age limits, um, state of mind limits. Um, so would this be a case of they should... you? So what you're asking is, is it enough for them to get informed consent, which yes. we assume they got? Yes, yeah. So but did the person, did he have a further obligation to just either do one of two things? Say, you understand that people will look at you and, you know, some guy that you meet will go, I simply can't get past your Klondike face tattoo. The employer will do that. Is that, is that enough for him to sort of tick down the ways that... This person may not realize she is limiting her her choices in life, or does it go further, and the tattoo artist has an obligation to go? I know, and I'm the one doing it, so it's not like a medical obligation to have it. So I should take it upon myself to say thank you. No, I will not participate in you limiting your choices in life. Yeah, I think you laid out the dilemma wonderfully right there. It's like because I think I think at the very least. You have to run down for this person all of the potentially, I mean, not even potentially, the actual, you know, deleterious effects this is going to have on their life and, and the really um, limitation that they're placing on their own opportunities that this decision they're making at this one moment in time, well, their young person has on the trajectory of the next several decades of their life. Um, and so I think at least spelling that out, at least making them wait like 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 you want to talk about like a seven period. day waiting period or a 24 hour waiting period but i'm even more inclined to i i can't understand how you could do this for someone because you know the impact it's going to have and you could go well they're an adult and they can make their own decisions and it's not illegal so let let it happen but um i just think from a like individual ethical standpoint like how could you in good conscience do that to someone knowing what's going to happen you know? Right. I, I've always said about when people ask me about uh, tattoos is I find it, you know, whatever else, I, I, I'm not putting any judgment on it. I personally find it depressing to think that you think when you're 20 that the thing that you put on your face that you will you will not have changed your mind when you're 78. Like, what? <laughs> like that's depressing to me that, no, I'm going to feel the same way. It's like you're cementing something about your own attitude. It's like 78-year-old you deserves better from 20-year-old you than to go, I'm going to be the same person. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, whatever, especially if you have some sort of saying on your, yeah, that you think is yeah. important. It's like, but, but in all cases, you're trying to communicate something. 
And to to think that you will be the same person when you're older that you were when you're young is just, I find it depressing. Yeah, and I think giving oneself the option of covering that or how much one wants to close, I think at the very least that's, you know, if we're talking about good advice, it's like, yeah, if you're doing something, I mean, when you're young, it's sort of the time when you're maybe bold enough or brash enough to do it. Um, but recognizing also doing a service to your older self to say, well, I, I, even if I still like that, I might want to conceal it. And I know there's lots of reasons why people get tattoos. You know, um, when fr- I know friends or family members, someone dies, you want to remember or memorialize that person or, you know, whatever, like many reasons. But uh, this particular case, so, you know, besides tattoos themselves in general, it's like, well, so you accept the general principle, but still this particular situation was just so, I, I just go, wow, who... Who would put that on someone's face um, and and basically, even if they want to do it, burden them with that for the rest of their life? It's like if someone was into like amputation and they said like, no, I'm like amputation is a thing that I'm really into, like cut off my arm. Like you yeah. can't do that. Like it's you just can't do that. Yeah. And to be clear there, it is still for the most part quite irreversible i mean you can get the 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 laser stuff but as i understand it's pretty limited as to what it can do it can sort of turn it into a a a darker smudge (laughs) because i just saw something about it like medically it's not it it does it diminishes the tattoo quite a bit but you still you cannot get rid of it you know there's there's nothing to do so you are stuck with it yep so um, Klondike lady. <laughs> Klondike. It's that's, that's so sad. It's not funny. It's like you laugh instead of crying. I mean, because really for that person, I do feel bad that they were in that place that that they did that. They, this wasn't someone, this was someone who looked like they had had a hard life. So it wasn't like, you know, this this wasn't like, this is not to rub it in her face, uh, so, to, so, so, so to speak. speak. Oh, but, he's, <laughs> he's telling us to be serious and then he makes a bad <laughs> Sorry, but, but just to say, wow, like, like we got to look out for each other people. But uh, in that spirit, Mike and I are going to... Uh, uh, go drink and then just get crazy tattoos on her face. So right after eating the rest of this uh, octopus. <laughs> this octopus All right. Yeah, you know, what about the ethics of feeding me this food? We'll talk about that next time <laughs> on Light Trees Walking. Yeah. So hopefully this uh, brought some clarity to the nuns' position. We we uh, had of course the octopus adventure and then uh, tattoo ethics. And next week or next whenever, next whenever you listen to this, we will be back with another batch of this same stuff on Light Trees Walking. I'm Mike Nelson. I'm David Berge. We'll see you here soon. Thank you for listening. 